Sean is the only person I know that has nearly perfect vision and still goes and gets LASIK. Dude, the, that's so that's so funny you say that. The doctor who did it uh, was like, I don't think you need this. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, do you wear? He's like, do you? Yeah, he's like, do you wear glasses? And I'm like, yeah, to drive. And he's like, he's like, all right, I'm gonna do it, but I think you're gonna have like superhuman vision. So that's what I'm waiting on. <laughs> you're kidding, right? Like you didn't actually need LASIK, and you went and got it. Well, yeah, I mean, like maybe three or four years ago, like it was just. I got, I got glasses. I couldn't see that far away. My wife was making fun of me. So I got him done. And, uh, no, he really, he really thinks he's like, he's like, you'll probably have double the vision of a normal person. So, oh so my I'm God. Pretty... All right. That'll be good for you when you're my age, it'll catch up and you'll feel better about yourself. <laughs> just, just when you thought I couldn't become more of a superhuman e-com player. <laughs> I mean, you know. Talk about basic. It all started with a rumor, a whisper about a private WhatsApp chat where nine-figure entrepreneurs swapped insights, information, and deals behind closed doors. And now, for the first time ever, these operators are pulling back the curtain on their clandestine world right here on this podcast. You're about to witness something truly remarkable. A glimpse into the minds and businesses of the world's most successful operators. So sit back, relax, and stay glued to your headphones. The chat is about to begin. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Operators Podcast, Episode 10. Matt's back <laughs> from his vacation. We missed him. Sean's here. The new look, <laughs> the new sunglass Sean look. I think we need to keep it. And we have the incredible Katie Mamarion today. We're stoked to have her, uh, a woman just crushing the D2C world. So, Katie, thanks for coming on. Yeah, um, the 18 years, right? So I started this company. The company's Caden Lane. Um, we're a baby products company. So we do baby swaddles, apparel, nursery, um, things like that. But uh, I was 24 years old when I started it. Same old... Ooh story as any founder. Um, you know, I, my friends were having babies and I was not yet pregnant with my first, but it came shortly thereafter and saw an absence in the marketplace and thought I could do it better. Um, a friend had this like horrible cheesy diaper bag in her car and I was looking at it and I was like, why are you carrying that? Cause she was a more trendy mom. And she was like, that's all that's out there. And I had already, I started my first company actually in college. Um, I went to the University of Texas in Austin and I started a photography business there. I went around and took mm. pictures of babies um, at schools like Santa pictures and holding <sighs> bunnies and things like that. Um, I had saved up the money and knew, actually it was my first really important business lesson in college. Um, and I taught it to myself. I did not learn it in school. And it was that when you have a business where the capacity or the revenue or the income that you drive is only dependent on your own efforts is where you hit a ceiling higher. And that's what was happening to me is I could only shoot so many kids. I could only go see so many schools. Santa Claus was seasonal. So it was hard to really grow the business. And I wanted to, I love the idea of developing a company that like somebody in another, you know, city or state could use. Um, at the time, I wasn't even dreaming about people in other countries, right? 
And so I was kind of just trying to think of like, what product am I going to do? And I was just making up things. I wanted to do apparel, but it was, you know, overly saturated and maybe I'll do shoes, but I don't know about shoes and I can't sew a button onto a shirt. <sighs> so diaper bags came along. I was like, okay, this is it. And I spent the next maybe two or three months just obsessing over brands that were available um, and products. And I drew out my first prototypes and um, we're actually based out of San Antonio, Texas. So Mexico is only a couple hours south. And I found a manufacturer in Guadalajara. And at this point I was pregnant. And so I took my pregnant butt down to Mexico and negotiated um, with the factory there and came out with our first prototypes. And I actually placed my first order um, for production before I even had a single customer. So I hadn't huh. yet even gone door to door. Yeah. So that was, was my that confidence first or ignorance. Both probably I was only 24. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, you know, I think I'm really good at kind of having like a fuck it attitude. I wanted I to it. believe that I could do it. And I just, you know, in my research of all these other brands, I was like, they're, it, it's not rocket science. Like you just have to have a really great product and people will buy it. You know, you, you can't go in it to the other way. I want to have a business. No, you're sucking up the panzer. That's yeah. just, that's, that's what this is. <laughs> I'm always going on and on about it. starts with a product. Sorry. It it's does. Hard right all the time. It's hard being right it all the time, guys. Hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so once I got my first purchase order, it was about $20,000. Um, and that was the capital I used. It was from my savings account for my first business. And I put it all into it. They were delivered into my garage. And I went door to door um, to local like brick and mortar boutique stores. Um, and the first one went and I wrote an order and, you know, they loved it. Went to the next one. Then I expanded into cities, Austin, Dallas, Houston, and then started going to states. I went to my first market in New York. And remember, guys, this is back in like early 2004, 2005. If you were going into any kind of product development, you had to go to market. And you, you know, you put in your time there, you had a booth that was in the back of the show. You had to kind of earn your way up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you had to deck, go there days early and spend a fortune on these booths. That's like I mean, it was on the, uh, on the West side, right? Like near the West side highway where that is that, is yeah. that where that was? Um, it was, no, it's up in the piers. What are the, yeah, yeah, on the piers? Yeah. On exactly. Yeah. yeah on the piers yeah. over there. Yeah. Thanks yeah. That so that, yeah. that was my first market and you know, y'all won't care about this, but if there's any women listening, I actually took a four week old baby there with me. Whoa. And yeah, I was due because remember I was pregnant starting this whole first company and I went into my OB and I told her, I said, I really need to schedule an induction. And she was like, why? And I said, well, because I've started this company and I need to go to market. <laughs> and she was like, you're 36 weeks pregnant. And I was like, yeah, I know. And I'm, I'm either taking a four week old or I'm taking a two week old to market. So what do you want to, which do you want me to do? Cause I'm doing it. <laughs> and so she let me uh, schedule an induction and I ended up having to have a C-section because I was not ready to have the baby, but uh, it worked out. Okay. I strapped it, took it to market. Um, it was my son. And um, that's where I, I Nordstrom placed their first order. So we wow. really, yeah. So, and then that it kind of, from there i just have to jump in right as soon as i heard her story i'm like you have to come on the podcast because Dude, I, like you're, just, you're so much tougher than the rest of us right because <laughs> everyone on twitter is like i'm grinding i'm hustling i'm yeah, in my right. grind set i'm like <laughs> bullshit 
like he's like <laughs> on their laptop in starbucks yeah exactly pregnant <laughs> driving to mexico placing on orders door-to-door sales literally door-to-door sales then taking a baby to the fir- her first trade show i mean it makes yeah, me you sean it turns out that that was my first very important lesson in marketing because it turns out a pregnant or new mom selling diaper bags is a really good marketing scheme <laughs> It was like real life UGC. That's what that is. That's before UGC even existed. It was literally before it existed. So, um, so over the next couple of years, we grew into probably about two thousand stores, not including um, Nordstrom's expansion. And um, we worked with Bye Bye Baby too. So we did Mass Merchant um, and brick and mortar, but really focused on brick and mortar. Um, at that time, our product was really focused around <clears throat> baby bedding and diaper bags. So mm. our, yeah, our average purchase was, you know, at retail was $400, which I'm like drooling over now in, you know, the direct to consumer world. I'm like, God damn, how do I get it back up to that? Days <laughs> <laughs> We're lucky if we're, you know, in the, just under a hundred. So, um, but it grew. We we did celebrity nurseries. We had our press and PR back then was about being in these weekly magazines. Um, we did like Tori Spelling's nursery and we were on her reality show and we did really cool things that helped with branding um, mm. in the long run. And then, you know, we grew and 2008 came and 2009 came and half of our stores closed overnight. Whoa. And yeah. And it's funny, like we used to, it, we used to, people in this industry used to talk about 2008, 2009, the way that now we all talk about IOS and how it affected uh-huh. the cost of marketing, right? Well, I mean, it was, it was even more drastic. I mean, as much as all of our costs of advertising and our CACs went up and it really affected the way that we do business, it was the difference was this was really pre websites. I mean, we, we worked with drop shipping on websites. And so we had, you know, bye bye baby drop shipped our products, but not near at the volume that we see with online purchasing now. Um, and so yeah, half of our, half of our stores closed and we were still going to market. It's when our company really pivoted from these expensive products to more giftable um, apparel, but I knew that I didn't want to be seasonal apparel. And I've talked to you guys, I've listened to you guys talk about seasonal apparel, seasonal products in general. Um, and I had haven't had enough experience in retail to know that that is the hardest thing to do. What you really want is a product that sells at 365 days of the year, you know, and then on Black Friday, it kills it. But you don't want a product that has seasonality where maybe for a whole third and fourth quarter, you know, it's not selling. And um, so we shifted and we started bringing in more gifty products because the stores that did survive 08 and 09 were selling lower price point products. I mean, it was a recession, right? And so we kind of did that for a couple of years. Um, we added, this is when brands really started to touch on direct to consumer and we added our first website, but it did not have a shopping cart. And it was like, <laughs> this was pretty, yeah, I know you could have a website. Had just exploded. Have <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> Y'all have no idea. When I think about it, like back in the day, I'm like, God, what, where were, you know, you, you couldn't even, we were just learning about it. Um, I have to tell you, I left out this part. So I also have, I have a second company and it's a brick and mortar store, just a single brick and mortar store in Texas. And it's a baby store. And 
the reason that I opened it and my first touch with e-commerce was when we were doing these celebrity nurseries and the people magazines and the us weeklies and all the press would um, have to credit a store because people wanted to know where to buy it. And we would immediately see a lift in that product from whatever store we had to pick. And so we were, you know, trying to negotiate even with our accounts, like, okay, Nordstrom, if we send it to you, then, you know, we want you to bring in these SKUs for the next purchase order because we knew it had that kind of appeal. And eventually I was like, you know, why am I not pushing this press and this, you know, these people to my own website? So I created Nursery Couture um, so that when we were getting press, we could send it to my other company. And I wasn't upsetting my accounts because they didn't know that it was related to us. And, you know, a big thing back then, guys, is if you were wholesale and you were adding shopping carts to your website, retailers were pissed. Oh, yeah. They did not want you competing with them. They did not want you. I mean, map pricing was a thing. You know, they were afraid you were going to discount if they had products still on their shelf, but you were trying to clear out inventory. There was a lot of risk involved. And it's why we didn't have a shopping cart with our first um, website. And that was probably like in 10, 11. And then big commerce kind of started to come around and we switched over to big commerce. And that's when we added a cart. So we were still primarily um, wholesale, but just from natural, like, you know, organic search, right? People were coming to our website and we'd do like $2,000 in a day. And I was like, that's like free. And think about our margins, right? They were spending $500 and I had built in these incredible margins because we were having to wholesale to these mass march. I mean, it was just, it was a moment. Um, and we did that for about a year. And that's really when we made the big decision of you know, is this an opportunity that we're not grabbing onto? Shopify was really coming about. This was like 2015, 2016. Um, and I hired a girl that I actually took from an analytics company. I'm, you know, in this, I've heard y'all talk about this too, but I, I'm not a believer in agencies. Um, mm. we keep everything in house. You know, I don't want to pay full price for somebody spending five minutes on my company, you know, when I can bring them in and they can spend eight hours on it a day. Um, but I didn't know what I was doing. I knew nothing about e-commerce and I knew that I needed to figure it out. So we hired this local analytics company. Um, I started sitting through the meetings and really just thinking these guys were idiots and I was paying for something that was very simple. And so I took, there was a girl that was our account representative and I asked her if she wanted to come work for us and she did. And she was the one that kind of helped me set up the Shopify store. We created all of the graphics for our shop. We created all the copy, all the content, all the products listings. It took us about three months and it was uh, in October, November, December. December 31st, we sent out an email to all of our wholesalers and said that we were no longer doing wholesale and we launched our Shopify store January 1st. Um, but a big thing to note, yeah, so we had this big commerce shop, right, for like two years, not driving big revenue, I mean, under a million total, um, but not spending a dollar in advertising. So nice padded margins on it. And we, the traffic that we were pushing towards it was just like old school SEO and analytics, like alt tags and, you know, yeah. link building and blogging and like all the crazy stuff people used to do. Um, and when we switched from our big commerce site to our Shopify store, 
we, I learned about um, redirects and how important they were in link building. <laughs> so we lost 50% of our traffic overnight. And yeah, which is like, y'all talk about, you know, and I know people listening because this is right. It's a lot of like people in business, right? That are listening to your podcast and running companies like this. Oh, yeah. Traffic is, you know, I can tell you at any point in the day on my website, I can look at traffic at 10 a.m. in the morning and I can tell you what my total revenue will be that day just based off of what the traffic is, you know, and just in, with a gut instinct, not taking mm -hmm. into consideration conversion rate and all this stuff. So our traffic, we launched Shopify site and our traffic cut in half overnight. And we spent probably three months trying to figure out what the hell was wrong. And it was just simply Google re-indexing us, like all the technical stuff, right? That like somebody could probably tell us more about that we don't know. Um, and well, it's interesting how you were so SEO based, right? Yeah. So um, you weren't running paid ads. None. Right. Well, so that makes so it makes complete sense. Facebook. Like that's that that's what happened. And I like, know. Well, right, the, people talk about SEO a lot. Still, I got <laughs> it, it. People are still hanging on to SEO as this big deal, and it still it still is, but. Kind of, it's, it's kind of different when you have a brand and it's kind of different when you're able to really run paid ads. I think SEO to me still feels like a relic of the pre-paid ads days or it's very useful for like if you're selling diaper bags and you know someone's looking for diaper bags, sure. Um, but when you're big enough and have a brand, a real brand, it's like um, are, is that really the way you're capturing people or is it really paid ads? Are you doing paid ads now? Oh yeah. 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 This was, this was 2015, 2016. Okay. Right. Okay. So this was like, yeah. I mean, before anybody really knew how to make Facebook really work, everyone was just throwing up static images and driving sales. But I just want to talk about how crazy it is and like how much guts it takes to, 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 to pull off what you pull off. Right. One, it's like amazing to, you know, launch the business while you're pregnant and, and, you know, go to the trade shows, but you have an awesome wholesale business this whole time. You're getting celebrity yeah. placements and then post the financial collapse, just email everybody. I'm not going to sell to you anymore. Bye. Like that's so insane. <laughs> you ghosted like, your wholesale business. It was just like, we'll see ya. Uh, yeah. Well, I <laughs> turned out I'm pretty good at just saying no goodbye and changing things up a bit. Yeah. You, you know, really, what it came down to that really influenced my decision was I was so fresh. We would create these products and we had a, our first like apparel line um, before we completely cut off wholesale. And I'd go to market and these buyers for these retailers that it could be anything from the store owner to just an intern to anybody would come in and they would pick what they liked to sure. put into the stores. And knowing my customer so well, and also having this store at home, I would try to say, well, no, this you know, this is how you mer you should merchandise it, or this is what I feel like the moms are asking for, or, you know, this, I mean, I was my target audience at this time. I and mean, I have three kids now. So throughout those years, I was pregnant multiple times at market, convincing these buyers to buy baby products. Um, and I, what I really recognized is that I wasn't able to talk to the end consumer and there was too many parties involved. And I felt like if I could just have a conversation with the pregnant mom and tell her how important this, you know, swaddle was or this knot gown or the diaper bag and help her understand, you know, and learn and really ultimately make her life easier. 
then I was going to win. But I was having to go through middlemen, right? And I wasn't there. Like, unless I was doing a trunk show at Nordstrom, you know, it wasn't, I didn't have that capability. I was, I had all my eggs in somebody else's basket. You the know, the thousands too is like when, when retail lost its art. So mm -hmm. you probably were experiencing some of that. Like, I remember the, the, like the early two thousands, um, and like what was happening and like yeah. from, from then until today, buyers are not buyers anymore. They're spreadsheet people now at retail. Like it's, it's, you no longer have the, like the, the, the category buyer who like really cared about the category and was in the job for a long time. You know, by the time yeah. you experienced that, like I, I, like I remember my first company, like acutely seeing this happen at retail, multi-brand retail, where like the buyers just stopped giving a shit. And it was like, I want the pink one because my data says I should buy the pink one. Yeah. And I didn't even talk to the brand to figure out like, is that actually what the customer cares about? Or they would say, I want the peak one, but I want it in six months. Right. And market doesn't exist when you're having to work on calendars like that. Whereas I can come up with a product tonight and have it on my website within 10 days, right? I can have it from my factory in 30 days. And that speed to market does not happen in the old school way of doing retail. Um, no. Although I don't, I don't think, people like to ask that question a lot and I don't think brick and mortar is going away. I think the experience of shopping in person uh, for, even for all of y'all's brands is still a very valuable experience in oh, branding. Oh, no, for sure. There's no discounting the value of retail. It's, yeah. I think I'm best, uh, the nuance in some of this is also like in your category, there's a fashion element to this, right? And style. And I think that and I, in my old company I used to deal with a lot with fashion brands. And that was like a common thing when they sold apparel. Yeah. It was just like, they could never get the full line into a retailer. It was always like and then, two pieces out of then 30. you get it into the retailer and like I would go, if I traveled, I'd go into a baby store to, you know, to kind of just see it. And they, I would like merchandise the shelf for them, you know? Yep. And we, now we get to merchandise our own websites the way that we feel like best shows off the so product. you still don't do any wholesale? No. Wow. And so she, are, we only sell on our website. And I just want to say, you are the face of D2C, right? Like, I, I love Nick Sharma. You know, he, he has that monocle. But like, all of those Forbes articles about Warby Parker or whatever should really be about you because you did exactly what D2C is supposed to be. You got sick of not talking to your consumer. You knew what they wanted. You wanted to build that relationship. And now yeah. you've built this nine-figure business because of that. And it's like, this is the story you don't hear. For, like, for some reasons, we talk yeah. about all birds, but like this is- because we're working. <laughs> yeah. There's no press. Yeah. No yeah. press. I love it. One of you guys threw your, I don't know which one it said, but one of y'all said something about y'all are the best, um, your brand is the biggest unknown brand and thanks to your PR agency or something. Because, I don't know who said that, but That's it was me. something like that. Was I use Jason. that one all the time. I literally <laughs> laughed out loud like at my desk listening to y'all and I was like, God damn, that's so freaking true. So yeah, it's so true. You, I mean, it's, you know. Do you, do you still do, like, so you built your brand early on, on like clever yeah. PR. Do you still use that lever? Like to, as a, as now a purely D2C business, or is that just not important anymore? Because like you're, there's other mechanisms. 
to get your, like to get it out. You know, we don't actually, we don't do PR like that any longer now. I mean, even, you know, we didn't even do influencers until a year ago. Um, A really interesting part, I think of our story and how we go. Yeah, we grew. I mean, I could blow y'all's mind a thousand times just because I've learned so much about the direct to consumer business in the last two or three years but we grew to 30 million in revenue and I was the only executive. The mm. only person under me was people packing and shipping orders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Now That's we just, have- like, Yeah, wow. But, but what that does, and so we do, we keep it, I mean, I kind of touched on it a little bit, but we're not, and I'm not your typical CEO and founder. Um, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm truly at heart an entrepreneur. I love business. Like, you know, if you're not making money doing this and loving every moment of it, you know, figure out something else to do. I tell my kids every day, I'm like, figure out what you love to do and then figure out a way to make money doing it. And if you can do that the rest of your life, like it's, you know, and then also find like what you like to drink and if you like to travel and it's nice to have a lake house, right? But Um, but we grew. So when we started scaling our Shopify store, we didn't pay for advertising at all in the first year. So we had to work back to, we did go back to PR and old school SEO to hit that first million in 2016. Um, and that girl, her name was Kristen and she was wonderful. Um, told me about Facebook ads and I wasn't on Facebook at the time. And she was like, I really think that we should advertise on Facebook. And I'm like, no, it's social media. I didn't, this was 2016. And I was like, there's no, no, it's just, you know, we need to focus on link building and we need to get, reach out to these bloggers and we need to do more celebrity nurseries because this is what helped us grow all the years. And she was like, let's just try it. So I remember spending $100 a day on Facebook and then $500 a day on Facebook. And then, you know, the crazy part about marketing online is you have to spend the money before you see the revenue. It's not like a normal sales job where you go out and you write the order and you're like, okay, Target's placing this order for, you know, a million dollars. And then you feel good about it. You're spending a million dollars before you even see it convert into a sale. And so we would spend 500 and then the next day, you know, our sales would be $4,000. And I'm like, okay, okay, this is feeling good. So we doubled and tripled over the next three years with five employees. Um, and then COVID came along. So when COVID came, we were at probably seven, just under 10 million in revenue. And we're, we're in Texas. And so, you know, I remember standing there with my five employees and we kind of looked at each other and we were like, well, we're either uh, essential or we're not. <laughs> we're going to work. <laughs> and because, I mean, we were all thinking about, well, how are we good? Are we going to drive our cars and sneak in to ship orders? We were shipping out of our offices. We actually had um, 5,000 square feet of office space above my retail store um, that we were doing 10 million in revenue out of. And I had just started plans, um, for the building that we're in now, uh, which is 10,000 square feet. And I'm actually building a 50,000 square foot building right now that we will move into next year. So we own every single aspect and, and process of our company, including fulfillment. And I have done 3PL. Um, I did it when we were wholesale. We had to because we sold to Bye Bye Baby, Amazon, Target, all the things, right? Um, 
And so COVID came and what it did, and, you know, I, I, I don't think y'all have actually talked a whole lot about how COVID really affected a lot of these uh, DTC no, we brands. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, it really was a slingshot for a lot of people. Um, and now some brands like in the, you know, home, like mattresses, right. Or I don't know, just different, uh, God, anything that became such an essential product during COVID. And I think there was some fear coming out of COVID for brands of like, Hey, was that a one-time thing? Or did I really create a brand and a product that can last longer than that? Um, we went through a sale process two years ago and that was every single PE's favorite question to ask us is your success based off of COVID. Sure. And I was like, no, I've been doing this a long time before COVID, you know, COVID just what COVID did for us is it, I, we kept thinking and me especially, um, and you guys with your own businesses do the same thing. Like I'm just waiting for the bottom to fall out any day because business is such a roller coaster, right? That when it's really good, you can't even enjoy it because you're anticipating the break, you know, like it's, and then when you're in the bottom, you're just working so hard to get back up top. It's just this like roller coaster of emotion. And, and I think all entrepreneurs out there and just people in business in general can probably appreciate that statement. Right. So here's what happened with COVID. Okay. Good, good businesses who drove sales, drove customer acquisition, built a brand, with a good product, they're still crushing it. Yeah. Everyone on this podcast, the ones, there was a COVID bump for many because, because fundamentally they didn't have a great product, but there was a timing component to life or, or they just got over out over their skis operationally. And, yeah. you know, that sort of like all of a sudden, well, we're, we had, we're sitting on all this inventory now and, and no one wants it anymore. We're overextended and we're screwed, right? I mean, um, you're seeing that with so Instant Pot. Super interesting. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, super interesting that, right. you know, there, that same question, the two questions that uh, I hear the most, I'm a former banker, so I talk to PE firms all the time and I'm, I'm always happy because, you know, it's just, it's sort of fun going back to that world. <laughs> and the yeah. two questions that I get are A, <laughs> Uh, you know, what about COVID? What about the COVID bump? And I'm like, well, we're growing faster and we grew faster in 2022 than we did in 21. But, but, and then the other one is, oh, who are you taking share from? And, yeah. and this is one that, you know, one that goes back to Sean. Um, this is, you know, good, good products increase TAM, good products create their own TAM. And it seems like that's another thing that you did is you sort of increase the TAM in this, in this space. Yeah. Well, what I what I wanted to say is, yeah, we talked about it with Instapot, right? They pulled demand forward. Like in uh, on a, if COVID didn't happen from 2020 to 2025, X number of, you know, air fryers would have been sold. That mm -hmm. same number was sold just in two years, right? Yep. Now, three years out, nobody wants fucking air fryers because everyone who wanted one bought one. But I know way more pregnant people right now. I have four pregnant people in my life, right? So, so uh, the demand is still going to be there, right? And you know, it the COVID bump was real for a lot of people, but it seems that like you know the best brands are are, are continuing to create that tam, right? And I think there's going to be a lot more kids for years to come. So I think you're fine. I think I it's category so. dependent too, like you know. 
I actually would say that Katie, you're going to benefit more post COVID just because so many people are at home making babies. Um, and <laughs> Matt, seriously, you making babies, Matt, did you make, did you make a COVID baby? Look, look at my face. Does it look like I'm still making like, I can't, no. I can't believe Sean, Sean did a COVID courthouse marriage. I saw that. Was, I got a was dog in COVID. Recently. I was one of those jackasses. Um, no, but, uh, no, I think I think Katie. I mean, a lot of baby brands are down this year, right? Or down last year, right? But the big difference is, the the one word I already described to you is tenacious. Like, very few people have the tenacity you do, right? And like, it's it's either insanity or conviction or or something. Just the ability to just make well, calls well, and run. Probably, with it. yeah. <laughs> I really I trust Northbeam because I know the rigor of their analytics, like they don't uh they don't compromise they don't they don't cut corners and having come from a finance background and being a numbers guy i know that all models are wrong but theirs is going to be the least wrong because of that level of of rigor it's like there's a trust when you're dealing with something with a model um the math behind it the rigor there's like a million shortcuts that can be taken i just I know them from for a long time, and I then that's why I like I trust that they are they're putting the level of analytics. It's like Hexclad um, reduce releasing a new product. We're just not going to do it unless it's great, unless it's innovative, unless it's special. And that and that's that's the approach over at Northbeam. So that's why we really really trust the platform. You are wasting a fuck ton of money by not using Northbeam. That's my my totally unbiased opinion about this is that you know, we'll spend a million dollars on on Twitter this quarter. I only feel comfortable doing that because of what Northbeam tells me, right? I can apples to apples compare a Northbeam, or sorry, inside a Northbeam a Twitter click versus a Facebook click, right? I can see the value how it changes over 5 days, 7 days. We we look at one day click that's kind of like our whole thing, but if you're if because other people look in platform like of course facebook's gonna fucking tell you it's the best driver of traffic and so is google and so is everybody else right uh so you you need a source of truth for your business (laughs) yeah i you know when i look back at what COVID did it 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 gave me a little bit more of a fuck it attitude because I kept thinking everything's going to shut down. We need to go, you know, push the pedal right to the ground on this company because we were, you know, day after day, you guys just barely, we were holding back ad spin because we couldn't catch our breath, right? I could have really ripped the bandaid off, but I don't really think that that's the best way to do it either. The way you have a business for 18 years is you're strategic and you make good business decisions. And sometimes overnight successes don't get that, you know, that wealth of knowledge or experience to go back and go, well, what if, or, you know, and so I'm more, I think I'm more actually, I hold back on growth because I want to make sure that it is an appropriate amount of risk and just belief, right? And so when COVID came, I just said, well, fuck it. Let's double our ad spin. And we did day after day after day because we kept operating like they're going to shut us down. They're going to tell us we can't come to work. They're going to tell us, you know, and then we were, we had Lysol cans spraying our boxes that were coming from China because we thought COVID was on it. Yeah. It's like, it was just (laughs) an insane um, experience that really looking back is incredible, but 
So we grew like crazy that year, um, moved into our building that at the time, so I was grew, built my first building during COVID, grew my business, and we moved in the week before Black Friday, which was also insane. Um, and then added on to that building a year later. This So we've been in this building for two years, um, and now we're going into our 50,000 square foot building. Um, we do, I mean, there's so much you don't have a long enough podcast. Like I'm like, get me in your, why am I not in y'all's chat thing? This is the thing. <laughs> I don't have any kind. So our whole experience, I mean, we're in San Antonio, Texas. We are one of two e-commerce brands in my city. Every person I have hired has zero experience with e-commerce because there is, yeah, there is no, and but I don't have to worry about losing them either because I'm like, well, where are they going to go? They have to move. There's no other brands that are doing e-commerce in my city. Um, but the cool story, y'all want to hear the story about the PE because it is pretty interesting. I yeah, I, I, I do. I just want to say we're going to add you to chat. You better uh, add <laughs> <laughs> We have to convince yeah. Todd. Todd is a great guy, but he is incredibly defensive. So if we can't add you to this one, we'll add you to a new one. We'll Why is just, Sean, just start another one? And it'll be easier. Um, yeah. Look, Todd's great. He does a billion a year in uh, maybe a billion, maybe less, maybe more. But the guy, the guy does not like new friends. So <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, anyways, it's you know, it's just it's been an experience, and truly, like I, I didn't have any kind of sounding board growing this business. I mean, mine were I have a, I have really great advisors. Um, and any, any founder or CEO or, you know, COO, CMO, all of them, you know, have this kind of group of people they go to for advice. But just in the last year, really, have I started to reach out to other brands and I'm like, oh my God, these are my people. Like, how did I, I you could have had these like cheat sheets. And when, um, the story on, so two years ago, we, I walked away from a hundred million dollar valuation 10 days before close. I went through the entire process, guys. Oh, yep. So, and it Your was bankers must have loved that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that's no what the first thing everyone says. I tell you, I I really enjoyed my bankers, um, and I'm still very close with them. And I probably yeah, I gave them a lot of heartburn <laughs> because I think it doesn't usually work that way. But it was probably the most valuable lesson I've ever had in business. Because going into it, so we grew to 30 million in revenue and I, I understood KPIs, but not the way that I look at the world of business now and today. So what we really were focusing on was ROAS and conversion rate, because that's the two most important aspects, right? And EBITDA, I'm, you know, like I said at the beginning, if I'm running a business, it's going to be profitable. And we run still to this day, extremely lean. Um, I'm a big believer. Our CMO is remote, but most of my staff is in office. Um, we get things done faster that way. Mm -hmm. We just don't tell Sean I, that. I, Sean, I'll argue till the day I die. I'm telling you, <laughs> I've got both. We have both remote and, um, and in person. And, and even now when we're hiring, um, a lot of people relocate because the ones that were remote, I've found really miss the, you know, at a certain level, they miss the, um, the collaboration with their, you know, team members, I guess. But, um, what had happened, and I think this is, 
interesting for anybody listening that's considering PE or selling um, because it's always in the back of your mind as a founder. You're like, I'm going to create this business and I'm going to sell it. And when I did it, my goal and you know, what I used to tell my ex-husband was I was like, well, when I get to $10 million, we're going to sell it. And that's going to, that was my goal, but I hit it. And then I was like, well, now it's going to be 20 million. And then I hit that. And then I raised the bar again. Right. And then in those years, 16, 17, 18, it was so much chaos and so much fun that I didn't stop to think about what I was really building. And I was at a dinner party um, in Austin, actually, with um, some people that were from New York and and just Austin, you know, a handful of e-commerce. And I heard this one guy talking to my then boyfriend about what he does. He owned a, a jewelry, women's jewelry company. He was a partner in it. And so my husband, who is in construction and knows, he doesn't even know what a conversion rate is, um, was trying to like say website stuff to him. And he said, oh, well, my, my girlfriend has a baby product company that's online too, a website. And so I walked over and I met him and he was like, oh, you do baby products. That's cute. And I was like, uh-huh. that sucks. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it's real cute. So he was talking about Facebook ads. He was very proud of his business. And we continued as we were talking, I think he started to realize that I knew more about what I was talking about. He said, well, we do $10,000 a day in Facebook ads. And I said, well, we do $10,000 a day by 10 a.m. And I said, that's that's cute. And he (laughs) and I I make fun of it because it was one of those moments, right? Where you're like, look, asshole, like, I know what I'm talking about. Back up just because it's baby products doesn't mean it's not a legit company, you know? And, but what he did, so he had gone through several um, sales of his companies and he said, what is, he started asking me questions like, what's your EBITDA? What are your margins? What's your COGS? And I was just rambling him off. And he said, do you know what your company is worth? And I was like, uh, no. And he said a number and he said it even lower than what we ended up getting LOIs for. And, but I just stopped in that moment and I went home and thought about it. And the next morning I was like, wow, like I really hit this. And I think founders and business owners have that moment where you're like, oh my God, like this is that chance. This is what I've been working for, right? This is what I've been working so hard for, for so long. And, um, and so I started the process of interviewing bankers and figuring out what I was going to do, settled on a uh, more boutique, um, agency just because I felt like they were more dedicated. And I really like the guy there from New York. Um, and we started the process in March of 2021. And I walked away from it January, it, well, basically December 31st of 2021. So it was a long process. We went through all, I mean, management meetings. We went through financial audits. We went through every single aspect of it. And what I learned, guys, and for people listening really is that private equity, there's two big players, right? There's private equity and there's strategic. And if you had like women's beauty, you know, I mean, you were in, you hit a gold mine because there's these huge strategic players that were buying up all these brands. But in my industry, there is no strategic, especially now that Bye Bye Baby's gone. (laughs) There's like, there is no strategic in my uh, industry. And so that really wasn't an option. And so then it became about private equity and I had to learn about what PE was about. And I sat in these interviews and I asked the questions. I'm like, but what, but what are you going to do? What, what are you bringing to the table? 
<laughs> and they would, right? And they would say, well, we think that you should go into international expansion. I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm already doing that. Like, yeah, I know that too. And then they say, well, we think you need to do X, Y, Z. And I'd be like, well, yeah, but I already, I told you that's what I'm doing. Like, what are, what else? And I needed to build out our um, C-suite. We did not have one. Um, you know, they would go through the audit, you know, the, um, what's the revenue or the, I don't even know what the one thing was, but they say, well, can we talk to your CFO or your controller about, you know, X, Y, Z? And I'd be like, yeah, hold on. Let me put her on the phone. And then I'd be like, it's me. What do you want to know? (laughs) (laughs) As an operator, you know, you are prideful of doing, wearing so many hats, right? Because you know, all the aspects, it's not what they want to hear. They want to know, right? And as a founder, they want to know that if you step away, your business is going to continue to grow and operate the way that it does. And that was probably the most valuable lesson I learned um, through that entire process. And what it has allowed me to do is hire the right people and put them in place so that now I get to focus on the things I love even more, which is the product development and the marketing and stuff. So isn't that nice though, when you can build a team that you can rely on and then you can focus um, on strategic the strategic aspects. You know, I know that Sean has that. Uh, Matt it has a really has a good partner, um, and you know we've been building that out as well on, on our side. And it's hard. It's hard giving up control of everything. How much have, yeah. like, how much have you delegated since since that PE process? Would you think from like, what percentage have, have you well, given? I've delegated given away? a lot. It doesn't feel like it. Somehow my days are still jam packed with things, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's actually, I've been extremely blessed with the people that have come into my life and the way that they have. Uh, my CFO, I actually hired her. She was pregnant when I hired her, which, you know, I'm, your HR departments would be like, hey, be careful. But I knew when I met her that she was a badass and a really good fit for us. And my CMO, I met through a friend um, that is was doing media buying and introduced me to him um, that he was looking to change spots. I mean, it was just like luck of fate kind of interactions, right? And I've trusted them enough. That's the hard part is letting go of control and then also trusting them to make the decisions on the behalf of your company or your baby, because this ultimately is like another child of mine, right? Like I've grown it into this thing and I'm responsible for all these people's lives. Um, you know, it's, if we have a great month or a bad month, you, you know, the last person to get paid is usually the founder or the CEOs. I mean, you can't just, um, you can't just get rid of people, you know? And I, there's just, it's a lot of responsibility. Unless you're meta or Google. <laughs> or Different, just, different just, rules. Just, just, cut, just cut people that you hired and yeah. you know, and it's going to work for you. But, you know, another thing that you – just really interesting, and this is one of the reasons why we were so excited to have you on. Sean's been talking about this for a while is that you know, the way you killed retail, the way you just shut it down and, and went all in um, D to C. And I, I didn't realize, like, what an incredible D to C success story this is. Um, there really aren't that many uh, incredible D2C success stories. Like now that the dust has settled on COVID, you look at the public markets. I mean, th- there are 
there are just the pure play D to C success story is, is really there, there aren't that many. And it's funny now that a lot of these D to C brands are pushing into retail and some, some should, depending on their unit economics. Others yeah. are like trying to solve the problem of a high CAC in D to C and they're not going to solve it by giving away 40 to 60% if the take. No, they need to focus on their LTV. <laughs> yeah. Right? Tech, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. I've seen a lot of big brands. They're trying to diversify. People are just, we've kind of hit the ceiling a little bit, right? And you have to look at your brand and say, well, what else? And I think this is where just brand value is so important and product because we can come to market with, we launched Swim this year. Um, having zero experience with Swim, we've always been a newborn customer. Um, even the first four years of D to C, we were, we were, we've always been first purchase profitable. That's been my ultimate goal. Um, and going through that PE process, I never considered, I never even knew what an LTV was, to be perfectly honest. I just was so happy that we were making so much money off the first purchase. And then I was handing off my customer to my competition, literally. And so we've, right. So we shifted and we scaled and we brought in bigger sizes and pajamas and swim. And I think that because we put so much focus on that experience, right. And the brand we can, you can come out with rings, right. Sean with wallets or, and, and the customers, they trust you a little bit more. So I, I don't think necessarily that the hit, the future of retail is going backwards. I think it's just taking into consideration what your customers, you know, trust you to provide for them. And I, I've got a whole, that can be a whole nother conversation of what we think the future of e-commerce is. Um, I think it's going to, I think it's, we're about to have a huge shift. Isn't it awesome how much better she is at her job than all of us? <laughs> like, <laughs> so much. <laughs> like the 18 years, the guts. And I, the, the one last question I have is like, what are you gunning for? Right? Like you, you had the hundred million dollar offer. Like yeah. you've been in retail, you've been in D2C, you have executives now, you're yeah, launching Swim. Yeah. Like what's. Are you going to be the strategic in the category? Are, are, is this, are you going to replace the, the bye, it was it bye bye baby? What the fuck was bye it bye called? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, they just, yeah. Yeah, I would, yes. I mean, to answer your question, I, yeah, absolutely. If, if there's not a strategic out there big enough that, you know, wants to acquire us, then I'll become that person and, and I'll do it the way I want to do it. I don't, I don't believe in, that corporate structure is the way that all businesses have to be ran. I think that there's other ways to run extremely successful businesses. And you guys are probably do that too. I think the creative thinking of it and doing it differently creates that moat, right? And it, it separates you from everybody. So yeah, I think, I don't, I don't know what the future is. And I don't know if we would, you know, if there's a company, some huge strategic out there, it's like, oh my God, I need that brand. Maybe, right? It's the same way that I checked the boxes when I cut wholesale off and went direct to consumer. I don't know what the future holds. But as long as I'm having fun and killing it and making a difference, then like hell you yeah. Go forever. You're building a business, yeah. you're going forever. Those are the best yeah. businesses. No question. I would 
I would bet on you. So if you ever want to do a secondary friends and family <laughs> round, or if you, if you want me to call Ikea, there's- We're I in. Mean, we, we, when you're you hear, in. <laughs> yeah. well, when we need it, we'll ask for it. But right now I'm really doing the 100% control. <laughs> so. Yeah, but just when you hear 18 years for a brand, it's like that's, yeah. I mean, 18 years is going to be 180 years, right? Like that's the European style yeah. of thinking that like American businesses lack. Like you're willing to to go to zero if you have to. You're willing to hire or fire if you have to. And that's not what public companies do on a quarter quarterly earnings basis. You're like, I'm doing what's best right now in the moment. And that's that's something I'd bet on for, you know, decades if I could. Yeah. So yeah. There's an element of like the, Katie, I, I, I just like it, just admirable where like you have a like this high degree of like short-term impatience but yet somehow long-term patience like yeah. it's just it's wild that you've been able to like you know maintain this like right now i'm gonna do whatever the hell it takes to make this work without this without a view of a finish line and just to say like i've been at this 18 years and i'm gonna keep going like patience is just so underrated as a as a variable like a, a an ingredient of success and resilience. Yeah, and, totally. Right? Like business, you, you can't have one without the other. You can't be patient. No, and, and I think and you have resilient. to be willing so, to pivot at any moment. Yeah. And change is fun. So. All right, Jason. <laughs> do, lay, lay some wisdom. Katie likes this dude. Dude, she set the tone. So this has got to be know. a good one. Don't fuck it I up. Know. I know. It's <laughs> getting hard. What are we, episode 10 no now? Pressure, man. Right, like, Jason, do uh, do the intro deep. actually. <laughs> Run us in episode ten, panzerism number episode ten. Episode ten, we're it. kicking this off with a panzerism. So, and it's it's kind of this one is more of a like a career development hack more so than it is like a business building hack. You know, a lot of our stuff has been around that, but I just think I just see this all the time, and I had to get it out there. Like, guys, people. Do not vent on social media, please. It's like, it's not a good look and it really has no upside. So just cut it out. I, I keep like, I keep seeing this. It's like people need to harden up, stop venting, like call a friend, call your mom, call your dad, call your sibling, text someone, but like, don't put it out there on social media. And I made this mistake a few weeks ago, but like I was told that a vendor hadn't responded, a potential vendor hadn't responded after a, a number of attempts by our team. And guess what? I was wrong. They had responded. I'm an idiot for tweeting about it. And I should have done my homework first. It was like the person who told me about it, like just missed it. And seriously, like don't post negative shit unless it's really going to make people laugh. Like then it's the only time to do it is like, if you want to be funny, do it. But like, if I see your tweets and you're complaining about your job and your clients and your life and guess what? I'm not hiring you. You're not getting hired. And you know, we all run large brands and you know what sucks when people post negative shit about your product or your company? Most of the time these people are fucking wrong. Um <laughs> they're, they're, like there's this there's this Reddit post today. There was a Reddit post today. And it's, and it's like Reddit is like a cesspool. I mean, it's amazing. Reddit's amazing, but it's also fucking crazy. And and someone posted something really negative on Reddit about our brand, and, and it's just like totally wrong. And you, you know, you go out and you do that. And like you, you got to resist the urge. The urge is powerful. You know, 
you want attention, you want a dopamine hit. Um, but you know what's really good or, and really hard? It's like post positive things. Negativity comes easy. Fight it and you'll be better for it. Unless you're going to be really funny. But Sean can do it because Sean's hilarious. Unless you're going to be funny, you know, and then Sean's posts really are negative. They're just fucking funny. No, they're not. You know? I, I, just... I, I, that's not, you're right. That's not fair. But Sean is funny. <laughs> and that's like, that's the goal. Can, I'll give you, can I give you a story on this one? The, the negative. Yeah. So I, yeah. I do obviously I agree. Um, uh, so when we launched Lomi, uh, we caught so much fire so fast that this fucking YouTuber, I won't even name him because I hate this guy so much. He figured out that there was like so much YouTube search volume for our brand, right? That he put, he did this massive teardown, like take us down video. And this, his whole channel is like, he's a professional troll. He, he probably like, done us too. Dude, sure he's, he's done, done everybody. Us. Like he, he, his most popular video ever was like how feminism is the worst thing on the planet. And like, <laughs> and, and, or like Elon Musk is a complete scammer. So like we had this, this teardown video he posts this thing and, it, and he's got a massive channel. It's like a million followers, right? It's like, he's basically like, I don't know what you call it. Like it's a, it's a type of porn. Um, and we were in process of our series B when this fucking thing hit and it like, it got like six or 700,000 views. Cause dude, we were spending like 50 to hundred grand a day on YouTube. Like our brand was getting search volume. One of our potential investors actually pulled out of the deal because of this video. They believed what this guy said. This guy was like, this thing is a scam. You know, it uses electricity. Why the fuck do you want to buy something that plugs in? My response to the guy was like, I don't know. Do you like, do you wash your laundry by hand? Like, I feel like plugging shit in is kind of what we do as a society. So it just, and it, so here's the positive. Like his video basically spawned some of our best marketing. Cause like we started thinking like all of his critiques, we need answers to. Right. And ultimately that video, all it did was it kept an investor who uh, got spooked out of off my cap table. Yeah. And that was probably, probably the best thing that ever happened it. to you. Right. Probably the probably best had thing. Great engagement too on it. So that was good. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, some of our best ads have come out of that shithead. And so Jason, I feel you like, and we still get this, like, I still get these like trolls that like to take us down and I'm with you. I'm like, I don't actually understand what the point of it is. I don't, I don't get why, like the internet is not your pillow. Get a fucking pillow and scream into it if you need something. <laughs> well, look, you know, it's, it's, it's a human response and it comes from in nature. If something bad happens to you, you can die. If something good happens to you, you just continue to live, right? <laughs> and dying is way worse than continuing to live, right? Um, so negative feedback, negative critiques, negative feelings stick around and hurt way, way, way more. Uh, and you know, my wife's an influencer, right? She just, she opens up Lululemon bags and she wears them and, you know, <laughs> or like she'll review cooking stuff, what, like whatever she does and nothing but positivity. Like we're talking like, you know, 50 comments and girls are great at ramping each other up, right? Being like, love this. You look beautiful. One negative thing. And she's like bummed about it. Right. And right. it's like, it's just, it's so human nature just to go straight to negativity. There's and such an element of put what you want back. It is. It's much easier. World. It's just much easier to tweet negative shit. It just is. Like, that's the point. And, and that's why, uh, I don't know, I feel like I tweet a lot less than certain people because I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to engage in it. And But it's just, it's such a bad look when you know, you've got these, these e-com folks, uh, growth 
people 25 to, to 32 and and they're just like talking about how hard their life is and how hard their day is like i don't know how anyone would want to hire any of these people but i'm just going to respond like now not a good this look. episode and tell them why don't you listen to katie's story and tell me how fucking hard your life is oh yeah i mean dude i mean basically no nobody in our industry has the guts katie has right so uh, well, I think we called it balls, but I'll take guts. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she definitely has the balls too. Uh, but yeah, like the, the negativity, look, I've been negative. I've, I'm really trying in the past couple of months to just have pure positivity because there's only positive outcomes out of positivity. Um, it's a good panzerism, Jason. Next time I hear you complain, I'm just going to send this clip to you. So there you go. <laughs> this is good. Jason, careful, man. This stuff comes back, dude. You make Whatever you put you out, sleep back it. to you. All right. So uh, uh, we've got – I want to. I do want to finish. Um, Sean, I know you're in the notes. You've got this deep end topic that you want to dig into. Are we ready to do that? Because like, I think it's interesting, and I almost don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, so why, maybe start with that like where this came from this comes from a podcast i was thinking of so or, or, or i listened to so logan bartlett shout him out he has the best podcast his podcast is better than our podcast if you're listening to this <laughs> do all listen. podcasts are better than our podcast <laughs> we had an agenda two hours ago <laughs> But so, so Logan Bartlett, he, I think he's like a, he's an investor over at Red Points or, or, or something. I don't even know where he works, but he gets on like the best guests, right? And like 500 people listen to it. So he had the founder of Twitch on, right? And the founder yeah. of Twitch, super smart guy. And he was, you know, he was the CEO after the Amazon acquisition for like five years or whatever. But he was talking about how tech companies shouldn't be remote. Right. He was talking about how Silicon Valley, like the beauty of it is if you think about Google, it's a campus of smart people running around like hippies working on whatever projects they want to work on. Right. The best things to come out of Google, like Gmail or, 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 or whatever are things that like were just randomly thought up in people's free time and they found a team and, 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 and they delivered it. And he's like, that is how tech companies need to work. That is how innovation happens. Is this people in person, you know, not why are they paid so much? So like they don't have to worry about money. They don't have to worry about anything. They can just be creative. And he's like, the other type of companies, the type of companies that can be remote are the military. He's like, they have, they have systems, they have processes, they have chains of command, and everything is documented. And you do not go outside of the lines of the military. There is no innovation in the military. It's like you are an E you are an E1. You are a grunt. Then you're promoted to E2. Then you're promoted to E3. And if you want to be, you know, an officer, you go to officer training school and then you work up the ranks there. And it's just something I've been thinking of is, you know, we obviously have a lot of friends who run in-person companies. We have some friends who run remote companies. And when I think about Ridge being successful, you know, remotely, it's because we are structured like the military, right? Like I get daily recaps, I get weekly recaps, and everyone knows who their, who their bosses are and who they roll up to, and everyone has an assistant. And like, that's the way that works. So that was just a really interesting thought that I think should be discussed more. And do e-commerce companies need that innovation? Like, like, do they need the Google-esque campuses, people running around, you know, thinking and dreaming every day? Or are they better off 
uh, being more like a special forces unit. So just want to talk about that. I, I think there's, I don't think anybody needs the opulence of these campuses. Like, like I would erase that from the conversation, but I do think there's like real value in like creative density, right? So like entrepreneurial density and like having really smart people, creative people occupy the same space regularly is going to result in just like really, it's just going to result in great thinking. And I think that most e-commerce, I guess like most physical goods, like consumer businesses, probably Sean should run a lot more like you. And then I think there's a small subset of them where the, the energy source for the brand is actually creativity, not in like the marketing, but like in actually the product. And I, then, and I do believe that, and Katie, you might fall into that pile. Like, I do believe that the proximity of all that muscle matters in that, this, in those This point things. about the, cam the campuses and, and, you know, having a really nice workspace. Um, I think the first ones to do that, uh, that I saw was Bloomberg back, you know, many oh, years shit. ago. That's and, true. Uh, I remember when Bloomberg built this office in like the 60th Street next to Bloomingdale's in New York. And and their office was just like sick, right? And then I was in investment banking and the, there are a lot of companies, you know, they bring in lunch. There's a lot of food in there. It's all to get people to work harder. It's all to get people to stay in the office longer, work harder. And, and people th thought it worked. You know, I don't know how hard people are working at Ridge. I don't know how hard the remote people at Hexclad are working. You know, you've got Slack. There's lots of ways to do it. I mean, you can you can sort of tell who's who's working hard, but like, would they be working harder? It's. It, I think that's really what it's all about. It's about getting the output, and those those nice offices were a way to do it. But a lot of this that trend happened before Slack and before Zoom. And everything else. So it's just there's just been such a seismic shift in everything. I think it's still um, it's still going to shake out. I don't I don't think it's over yet. And I'm you know I go back and forth between the Sean camp and and the other camps on this one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Katie. You know I want to pitch in on this topic because we're a hybrid. So what you said, Sean. I mean, yeah. If you've got a brand and a company where you can be militant about the processes and the procedures and you're just cranking it out, then remote is a godsend because you've opened up your ability to hire people in all these different areas. But the second that you really need to focus on this like creative diversity and collaboration on maybe product development or product expansion or content creation or operations or any of the little parts. So I, I hate meetings. I don't know how you guys feel about meetings, but meetings suck the life out of me. My whole staff knows do not fucking book an, a meeting with Katie. She won't have anxiety leading into the no. meetings. It's such a time suck. It's, it's a waste of time. And what I have found is that being in person, things just happen faster and we do both. We do both. My CMO is remote. My CFO is in person. And my CMO, I mean, we, I do things faster with him on Slack than I do on a phone call because Slack becomes just our form of communication. My CFO is right outside my office and we Slack all day long. And I could just like 
ask her a question verbally out loud and she'd hear me. That's how close she is, you know? But to your point about these offices, so we're building this office and fulfillment center right now. And the one that we're in currently, I wanted it to feel homey. I, we, you know, our new one has an exercise room. It's got where I've like implemented this. If anyone wants to have a phone call with me, my ass is going to be on the treadmill when I'm talking to you. We have a kitchen island. We have a refrigerator. We want people to your point, Matt, to want to stay because, you know, you'll have members of your team that are just so dedicated and just workaholics, like probably the four of us, but there's others that need the daily inspiration. And I think if you don't have that, that focus, then remote is harder to get more done. I think you, you squeeze more out of people having them work together with other people in person. That's my experience. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it, but. You know, Sean, I'll, I'll add, I like my career started as a software engineer. Like that's my actual, like, that's what I am or was I'm recovering. Um, and I'll say like software product, it is, there's like a, a, a speed element that you get when you can work on a software product and iterate on it over time. You gotta remember like our products in our companies, they don't change that much, right? Whereas like, if you're a tech company, your product is evolving weekly. And there is an element of like, if you're sitting in a little pod and you can collaborate, you do go faster. There's no question that like, you can't make that process asynchronous. I don't know if that's changing with like these freaking AI tools and like all these coding assistants now. Like if you're just getting so much productivity out of that, that maybe you can give up that like in-person collaboration. Um, I will say that like, if we didn't have our, like our, like some of our product development, like our product engineering, if they weren't in person, it would take me like five years to make, like to develop the next Lomi instead of like two years. Right. Um, just because of the, like the hardware software cycles and how long those can be. And like, if I had to ship fucking samples back and forth just to get like hardware to my software team so they can check the firmware, like all that crap would take forever. So like, there's, I just think there's like, I don't, I don't think whole companies there's, there's, I don't know that there's an argument to say like the whole company should be in person. Um, but I do think there's like product teams and certain products where it makes a ton of sense where I would agree with the guy that you're going to go faster and you're going to find new, like you're going to find innovation faster. Yeah. Where, where I think about this is like, what is the source of innovation in a company? Right. And like, not to make myself sound too important, but I say this, I still told this to the team today. It's like, I worry that if I die, Ridge would go out of business. And it's right. like, it's like, I'm not especially smart or hardworking, but the way the company is structured is everybody looking up to like the general being like, okay, which, which direction do we march? Right. And that, you know, I, I obviously have Connor who, who, who's a general in the company in the same way. Um, but if you look at like a Google or whatever, you need a million really smart people that you pay a fuck ton of money because one of them can make an idea that ends up being a trillion dollar company. Right. Yeah. And you know, unfortunately we don't have that magic and rich, right? <laughs> the, the product team is very much focused on working on what they're working on, but you know, we're not getting product ideas out of, out of other departments. I'll, I'll call it now, Sean. I think that the trajectory that you're on and the size that you're going to get to, you will absolutely have that muscle. 
it, it, it's your, your product ideation is not going to come from you for much longer. Yeah. Yeah. But, it's just yeah, not, so. you know, yeah. like it shouldn't, you don't want scale, it man. Be, yeah. You want it to be the team that's, that's putting it together. Yeah. It is the benefit of scale. Yeah. And I, look, I, I have a, I have a fantastic product team. Right. And like we, we are building this stuff out right now, but it's just something I'm struggling with. Like, you know, be being fully remote and like the, the benefits of that is it does end up looking like a military and maybe you can build an org of the military that is, you know, DARPA, just like you're focused yeah. on product development. Right. And like, right. Those people are probably in person and they're touching samples and they're smelling samples or whatever, but the, and then like they have to plug into the rest of this remote org. Um, so anyway, people should think about it. Think about if your company is more like Google or more like the military uh, and listen to that podcast. It's a great podcast. <laughs> I'm actually going to, I had never heard of it. And uh, you're right. His guest list is like stupid. It's crazy. Dude, he had, yeah, he had Daniel Eck from Spotify I know. on. I'm looking at that. <laughs> he just had Tim, Tim Urban, who the guy that writes Wait But Why, if you guys have never read that, it's like, Tim is just such a great thinker and his writing is so entertaining. It's like the best piece of content you'll read is from Tim Urban. He's unreal. Um, super cool. So uh, there's the, the last thing. I don't know if we've talked about this, but do we want to wrap up or do you want to go into this lifestyle versus product company thing? Or is that like, is that the military? Do we cover it? Uh, look, I think we have, we have a couple more minutes, so I think we should dive into it. I, I, I wrote okay. this down because I wanted to, to get your guys' thoughts on it. The lifestyle company. That was a term that came out in like 2010, I think, 2012. And, and what it meant was if you sell – Monster Energy is the example people always tell me, right? It's like you are a beverage company, but people buy your merch to wear it. That means you are a lifestyle company. You represent all of these different aspects of somebody's life so much so that they want to be associated with you. And a product company would be – I don't know, Guinness or whatever, some other beverage company. It's like people buy it to use your product, right? And the real difference between those two is a lifestyle company trades at about a 50% better EBITDA multiple, right? Because you're selling this like, you know, uh, you know, we're so much more than just the products we sell. We, we can get into any category and our loyal fan base will follow us there, right? You know, Lululemon as a lifestyle company, people are wearing Lulu wherever they go and they need to have Lulu because it represents a core piece of their identity versus, you know, I just sell a widget, right? Um, and for a very long time, Ridge was a product company. We sold a wallet to some people sometimes, right? And we're working on transitioning to like what, what that really means. And you know, obviously bring up Yeti again. That's the people we're trying to model, right? Yeti is a cooler and a drinkware company. Those are products, but those products represented a lifestyle of outdoors, wild wilderness activities. But where they're struggling is they actually hit the wall. They can't get into bags as much as they should, right? People think their bags are coolers when you wear them outside. And you're seeing kind of like the, the limits of what being a lifestyle company really means. So, you know, at, I think it's, I don't know that it's the lifestyle of a, of a company, Sean. I think it's the, it's, sorry, it's not the limit of a lifestyle. It's actually the limit of the identity, right? So like Yeti's identity is the, like the two brothers that started it, you know, the, the fishing, the outdoorsmen, there is actually a ceiling to where that identity can go. You know, Lululemon's benefit is like the identity for who Lululemon, like that person is, is a much bigger TAM. It's got a way higher ceiling. 
than what Yeti's is. And return purchase. The customer of a Lululemon is buying over and over and over and over again. Where Yeti, once you have so many Yetis, the nice part is, is they last forever and you don't need any more, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah it, it's definitely like a, an inherent product thing. Um, and look, and I think like, yeah, and Jason, you can back this up. Like the EBITDA multiple thing is 100% true. Like there's a real premium you get when you build this big B brand thing. Like you just get it. Um, and doesn't lifestyle have something to do, I think, with a brand that like to use your two examples. I mean, to me, lifestyle brands are ones where the consumer relates to the identity of the brand. So it's there's all a certain, identity. Yeah. So there's like a certain type of guy, right, Sean, that you're marketing to that carries the wallet and you're appealing to him because you have this lifestyle brand. Like if you carry your wallet, you know, you're the cool, like there's this projection, right? That's this cool guy and he's got this minimal wallet and it's like so badass and it's not the big puffed one with everything coming out and whatever. Product is something that you're, that's just consumable, like at the grocery store. You know, it, the brand doesn't matter. Maybe. What's interesting to me about this lifestyle brand discussion is that I still feel like there's two ways of getting there. And one is the better, more sustainable way. There's Yeti that created a brand. They, they, they created a lifestyle brand in some respects, like very specifically around the way the people lived. And, and then there's Lululemon that just created a great product for that had really mass appeal, big, larger appeal. And then the lifestyle kind of built around it, built with it. And, mm -hmm. and maybe it's just, I'm overcomplicating it. And it's like Matt saying it's, or, or what Katie's saying, it's just a bigger Tam. But it just, it just seems to me like it's a little bit different that um, when you have this great product that kind of takes off in a big enough market, and then you have this ability to be a lifestyle brand, it's kind of like, I don't know who said this, you know, you know that you have a brand when you can sell merch and you're not a merch company. Did you say that, Sean? Did I steal that from you? I might have. I don't know. I, I feel like that was in our chat. That was in the chat. Yeah. I think that may have been Sean. Um, look, Jason, you're not wrong. And I actually think you're, you're, you're bang on that like Lululemon, and I've actually, like I've sat with Chip Wilson at his house and like gone through like some of the history and like heard him talk about this. Like the, he just, like there's some of it that's like catching lightning in a bottle where like he was early into this yoga movement in North America. And then he got to do it in this stealthy way in Vancouver where like Nike and them just didn't pay attention. Like nobody paid attention to this little Vancouver company, right? Until he showed up in like fucking Soho. And then everybody woke up. But, you know, Lulu and Yeti, the thing they have in common is both of them became fashionable. Like they became very trendy to own. So like, Lulu transitioned from you buy my leggings for yoga to you wear this shit out to the coffee, like to get coffee. Yeti went from like this cooler is like for these people who are going to get attacked by bears to like this cooler is for anybody who has a backyard, yeah. right? I just think that what Lulu has done in like their like active, healthy, it's for everybody, it's accessible is just a much more appealing and like to more people kind of brand. Yeti is stuck in the like 
it's for outdoorsy like dudes right and that's there's a seasonality element to that like i don't i mean jason you don't experience this but like up here in the northern hemisphere we have winter you know what i don't use in the winter my fucking cooler from yeti like that's just i don't think about yeti shit six months a year no, no, and, and and you're totally right that like you know eventually Lululemon appeals to forty percent of all people or fifty percent of all people because everyone wants to be healthier, everyone wants to you know live a better life. But yet he stuck at ten percent. Uh, the last example of this, and we can wrap on running. I believe on running their market cap is five percent of Nike's. Yeah. So you know five, seven, maybe ten years old company. Do are they really worth? You know, one twentieth of Nike. I, like, I actually think, think so. Yeah, I that's, really do. So, so you know, in my opinion, that is the, the, the they've captured the multiple of a lifestyle brand. Yeah, right. And if it's you like try, go out in the world and travel around, and that brand is pervasive. Dude, I saw it all over Europe. It was in Croatia. It was in London. It was like on the plane to and from, like. I saw those shoes everywhere and I saw, I can't like so many different types of people wearing that product. It really like, I was, I actually wrote it down. I'm like, holy shit. They've crossed the chasm. Like they are now on their way. Yeah. They did a good job. Yeah. But those are, those are trendy things, you know, and all of a sudden the tide turns, you never know. You just never know when. Well, nope, until next week, you never know. Uh, <laughs> well, Katie, it was really great to have you. Uh, Katie, you're story, awesome. I actually, I, this is like going to be, I don't really like listening to us talk. So I don't watch <laughs> or listen to our own show. So I'm going to actually go back and listen to your story again. Because I think there's so many like good nuggets in there. Uh, and I, I kind of want to take notes. Dude, she's a regular member. We'll, we should get her on once a month. She'll be added to the group chat. Under the pod, man. This is I'm uh, in. I'm, this is great. Watching, so this is right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, truly great. Yeah. Awesome, guys. Thank you. Go so make much. some babies so you can get a diaper bag. 